1922, author Franz Kafka published the story he had been editing on his deathbed, which was titled simply, A Hunger Artist. And in the short work, Kafka envisioned a performance artist who had become world famous for his public 40-day fast, fasts during which the artist would sit emaciated in a cage as an eager audience beheld his incredible restraint. Kafka himself, suffering from tuberculosis that would lead to his ultimate death when starvation or by starvation when eating became too painful an ordeal, he described the great splendor of the hunger artist's completed 40-day fast by writing this. The impresario came forward without a word, for the band made speech impossible. There's a band to soundtrack the event. He lifted his arms in the air above the artist as if inviting heaven to look down upon this creature, here in the straw, this suffering martyr, which indeed he was, although in quite another sense, grasped him around the emaciated waist with exaggerated caution so that the frail condition he was in might be appreciated. The artist now submitted completely, his head lolled on his breast as if it had landed there by chance. His body was hollowed out, his legs in a spasm of self-preservation clung close to each other at the knees, yet scraped on the ground as if were not really solid ground, as if they were only trying to find solid ground. And in the story, perpetually unsatisfied with both the limitations of the 40-day fast and with waning public interest in his art, the hunger artist eventually whispers into the ear of a circus manager where he's become employed saying, I have always wanted you to admire my fasting. Fasting, not unlike all the practices of Jesus, which each invite the practitioner to deny themselves, uh, it comes at a cost. That cost, which could be discomfort or hunger, this is the obvious one, suffering, had become for Kafka's artist the sole sustenance, sustenance for a life of hunger. And literary scholars have, of course, noted the obvious connection of the hunger artist to the Bible's motif of fasting as a spiritual discipline. Jesus himself understood that self-denial often invites the desire for recognition and for acclaim, which itself can become a reward for one's efforts. But the problem, according to Jesus, is that that reward is insufficient. All summer long now, we've been working our way through Jesus' most famous collection of teachings, what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. And it isn't just because we picked a book and ran with it. Uh, at Van City, we are learning what it means to practice the way of Jesus together, to not just sit and listen to the ideas of Jesus, but to actually put them into practice, embodying our teacher's lifestyle ourselves. So this is our third week in Jesus' three units of teachings on what he called false righteousness. First... If you recall, Jesus talked about what it means to practice generosity so that uh, it becomes second nature. You become utterly uninterested in recognition or in acclaim. And this way, generosity would become sort of like blinking. You just do it. Or in Jesus' words, your left hand won't know what your right hand is doing. And then next, Jesus describes praying for the sole purpose of communicating with God, not to impress or evangelize or to inspire an audience that can hear you. But tonight, Jesus brings his three teaching units to a conclusion, his warnings against false righteousness, and he bases it on a spiritual discipline that, unlike generosity and prayer, is largely unfamiliar to many of us, if not most of us. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6 and begin reading in verse 16. Jesus says, When you fast... 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you, my disciples, fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, uh, let's be perfectly frank about two important considerations from the outset here. First, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, you've probably gathered what Jesus is getting at by now, which is basically do not do good things with bad motivations. Generosity is very good, to be clear. You should be generous, but do not do it to be celebrated by other people. Uh, if you do, the reward sort of begins and ends there. You get celebrated by other people and that's it, and it's not worth it. Pray, obviously, pray, but don't pray to prove your spirituality to other people. Pray so that you can meet with God. Reject the human temptation to crave and to seek out and to work for your own acclaim and notoriety. Do not seek acclaim through spirituality, nor through praying or giving or service at church, nor through a curated false image of yourself you offer up to the world via the internet or your resume or your stories or your self-presentation. And it's honestly really quite simple when you boil it down. If you miss the teachings, go back and listen to the podcast. But that's kind of it in a nutshell. So, so simple is this point, in fact, that Honestly, we might have moved on without further elaboration were it not for Jesus' final example, which is, of course, fasting. And that brings us to my second point for the, from the outset, which is this. We don't get fasting, I don't think. Uh, how many of us uh, fast with any regularity? And how many of us would know why we would fast in the first place? What is fasting in the Bible? Uh, why do it? Why did they do it then? Why would we do it now? Um, and to break down a sort of general understanding of fasting in the church today, you might use one of two different understandings. The first is something called the instrumental view, and the second is something called the responsive view. Now, according to the first one, the instrumental view, you fast in order to gain some sort of benefit. And that could be like spiritual growth or the suppression of sins or improved health or it's like a better chance at getting your prayers answered. Uh, the Protestant reformers, both Martin Luther and John Calvin, were both advocates of the instrumental view and the church traditions that have been shaped by their thinking have been predictably affected. But there's a problem. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight wrote this excellent book, which is my uh, recommended reading for the teaching if you're interested. It's called Fasting, quite simply, or The Ancient Practices Fasting, uh, which is great, compact. I read it this week. Super helpful, super fascinating. Uh, in it, he writes this. Instrumental fasting, or fasting to get something, is all but impossible to find in the pages of the Bible and is rarely reflected in ancient Judaism or the rabbis. Instead of an instrumental approach, the genius of the Bible is its focus on the whole body response of a human being to some sacred, grievous moment. Such moments include death, the threat of war, sin, our neediness, or our fear of God's judgment. These kinds of events expose God as judge and God as the one before whom we live. So you might look at it this way. Instrumental fasting can be broken up into three columns, uh, which you'll see on a slide, I hope. Fasting begins with some desire. And it is accomplished in order to obtain that desire. So if you want growth or you want the suppression of your sins or an answered prayer or improved health, you might go about fasting. And then hopefully the outcome is growth or suppression of sins or answered prayer or improved health. It's really quite simple. But 
according to the responsive view of fasting, this chart badly misunderstands the Bible's understanding of fasting. In responsive fasting, responsive are, are the, the whole process begins with a sacred moment, which could be death or sin or fear or threats or needs or, or sickness and on goes the list. And as a response to any of those things, you might begin to fast. And of course, fasting inevitably leads to certain outcomes, many of which in the story of the Bible are life or forgiveness, comfort, safety, provision, and healing. But fasting does not begin to obtain those things. It begins as a response to a sacred or grievous moment in life. Again, this from Scott McKnight. The focus of the Bible on fasting is not on what we get from fasting or on motivating people to fast in order to acquire something, but instead lands squarely on responding to sacred moments in life. Fasting enters into how God interprets, experiences, understands, and explains significant events. Fasting, in fact, enters into God's pathos or into what God thinks and feels about death, sin, war, violence, and injustice. So in the Bible, fasting is typically connected to two recurring events. The first is something called Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. Uh, it's this ancient Hebrew custom instituted in the Torah that requires fasting or what they call the affliction of the appetite, which I think is way cooler sounding, in order to prepare the people of Israel for a time of confession and uh, repentance and atonement and forgiveness. And then second, fasting was a voluntary response to a significant event. So when Jesus references fasting in tonight's teaching, when you fast, he's referring to both the custom of fasting for specific calendar seasons and as a spontaneous, voluntary response to significant events. Fasting was how Israel responded when God had been dishonored or when God's will had been thwarted. Fasting was also Israel's response to the suffering and the sickness and the death of their own people. And Kamish Jewish fasting uh, was uh, an ordinary sort of practice. It lasted from one evening meal to the next. So essentially it meant skipping breakfast and lunch. There are obviously uh, exceptions in the scriptures, but for the most part, fasting in the Bible rarely extends beyond a 12-hour period. So in the first century, at the time of Jesus delivered this teaching, fasting had begun something of an official bi-weekly institution for many observant Jews. Now, the Old Testament doesn't teach mandatory bi-weekly fasting, but the hypocrites in Jesus' example, or the phonies that he mentions all throughout this three units of teaching, they had taken that obligation upon themselves. In fact, this is not the only opportunity Jesus utilizes to critique such a thing. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. The ritual of biweekly fasting was so ingrained in Jesus' culture that Jesus himself is called into question for the fact that his disciples did not fast twice a week. Look at this story from Mark's gospel. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now in that story, Jesus admits that while his disciples were not fasting at the moment, they would take up the practice after Jesus was gone. More on that in just a bit. But in tonight's text, 
not unlike generosity or prayer before it, Jesus again doesn't command, but he simply assumes his disciples will fast. But this invites a bit of a tangent, I think, because the New Testament doesn't actually offer a handbook for how fasting is accomplished, though it is mentioned on several occasions as having been practiced by both Jesus himself and by his followers. But even in the absence of detailed instruction, fasting had become a regular staple of the church very early on. Uh, Early church writings indicate that some of Jesus' followers had indeed taken up the practice of fasting twice a week. But get this, they did it on Wednesday and Friday as a deliberate affront to the Pharisees who did theirs on Monday Monday and Thursday. Because uh, as we all know by now, the early church was very punk rock. Uh, In my studies this week, I found this in one early church writing, which I just loved. Do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday, which is just awesome. I love how deliberate it is. Uh, And interestingly, the the practice of scheduled fasting went on to become a traditional fixture of the church's spiritual disciplines from very early on, as early as the first century. And from what we can tell, it was actually the dominant mode of fasting in general among Christians. And even so, scheduled fasting, or fasting twice a week in the early church, was done as a response to significant moments and seasons of life. It was done as a grieving response to sin or to the human unworthiness before taking communion. The Church of Jesus, of course, recognized that there would never be any shortage of sacred or grievous moments, and so even scheduled fasting was never about getting something that you want, but it was about making space for the great and ongoing need for response. There's so much in the world to respond to, so we will always need to fast. In fact, one scholar I read this week in a book that was published more than four years ago, he suggested, and just these things, I swear, I'm not making this up, he said that increased violence in the world or the devastation of a hurricane or an uncontrollable wildfire might all be worthwhile occasions to fast. Which I thought, whoa, that's weird. And, uh, and by doing so, you enter into the grief and consciousness of God. And the point that the contemporary church of the Western world often misses is that fasting draws our attention to both our spiritual and our physical being. Now, for a number of reasons that we don't have time to get into tonight, uh, many brought up in the Western church have bought into this strange sort of dualistic way of understanding our bodies and our soul. That is, many sort of think of the body as a, like a perishable suit uh, that houses your soul, and the soul is the real part of you. Uh, that worldview has its origin in Greek philosophy, not in the scriptures, not in the teachings of Jesus. In the Bible, you are not a soul in a body. You are a body and a soul. In the story of the scriptures, read it at your leisure. Uh, they don't end with a bunch of souls up in the clouds. It ends with full bodily resurrection on a restored planet Earth. And I mention all this because fasting is a way to respond to sacred or tragic events in life with both the spirit and with the body. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says it like this, Through fasting, we learn to see with our bodies because seeing is a bodily act. Now, I'm sure I'm not casting too wide a net by assuming that perhaps not a person in this room has ever fasted for the sole purpose of gaining acclaim from other people. Maybe one of you has. Feel shame for that. Um, I'm just kidding. Don't really feel shame for that. 
maybe none of you ha have ever done anything like that. Maybe very few, very few of you have fasted at all. And believe me, I don't say this as any sort of jab or a guilt trip. Uh, I realized when I set out to write this teaching that though I had fasted uh, in the past prior to studying for this teaching, I honestly wasn't entirely sure what I was doing. Or, or what it was intended to accomplish. Though I may have had answers, I wasn't terribly convinced of them. And one reason is that in our context, when fasting as a topic is a practice or when it's engaged, it's typically followed by one of two, uh, what I would argue are misconceptions about fasting itself. The first is the idea that fasting is a manipulative device by which the fasting person believes that he or she can pressure God into doing something he or she wants God to do. But listen to me on this. God doesn't hear you better when you don't eat. You know? It's not like buying extra lottery tickets because prayer isn't like the lottery. You know? We believe very much that God is responsive, that He absolutely responds to our prayers and our actions. He, he is actually... He actually does things differently than he would based on the actions and prayers of his people. For more on that, see the Bible. Uh, but he does not wait to, like, grant your wishes or snap his fingers until you're hungry and you've proven that you won't eat because prayers aren't like the lottery and God isn't like a genie. Fasting is a disciplined response that participate in God's mind and character. Will you be affected by such a thing? Will stuff happen because you fast? Almost certainly. Uh, will the outcome also affect the way that you relate to God uh, in, in theory for the better? It may very well. But think of it this way. Uh, right now, my father-in-law uh, is sick. He has cancer. And so there, there have already been some incredible instances of healing and breakthrough in that story. But he is still sick. So my wife, Abby, is, of course, grieved by her dad's sickness. And I'm grieved as well because I actually uh, love my father-in-law. But I'm also grieved in a unique way because my wife is suffering. So in this way, I am sort of entering into her grief by walking with her and participating in this, uh, this horrible season together as, as, a, as husband and wife. And I'm doing this as a response. I sort of couldn't help it. The situation demanded it. And in it, I have a chance to grow closer to my wife. And I'm not doing this to get something from it. I don't grieve with her or participate in her grief so that I can get something out of it. Um, and it isn't that we couldn't have been close otherwise, but I am responding to her suffering. And in it, we have a unique chance to steward intimacy amongst ourselves. So that's the first misconception. Fasting is not a means of manipulating God. And secondly, fasting is not abstinence. This is perhaps the one I run into the most. There, there is a spiritual discipline called abstinence, and it's not fasting. Abstinence is when you select an item, like a certain luxury, it might be entertainment or social media or whatever it is that you like, and you deliberately abstain from that thing for a time as an act of focused discipline. That's abstinence. Fasting is the voluntary choice not to eat food, or in most cases in the scriptures, or drink liquids uh, at all for a specific period and as a response to something, meaning you can't fast from Instagram. You can abstain from it, and you should either way, all the time. But you can't fast from it. Really, fasting, honestly, I would argue, should not be engaged when someone has no idea why they're fasting in the first place and will thus do so for improper reasons. And the reason I would argue that is because tonight's text is all about how much motive matters to Jesus. For example, 
Um, I personally would argue that fasting should probably not be encouraged among young folks, especially adolescents, uh, uh, particularly those who might struggle with body image, uh, and the implications I think are obvious. Uh, even amongst adults, if fasting begins to sound like kind of fun for its dietary purposes or as like a, a great occasion for a detox, then one must sincerely wonder if they've already drifted too far from the true purpose of fasting in the first place. Now, before we end tonight, as we bring Jesus' trio of teaching units on false righteousness to a close, I think there's actually something really pressing here for Van City Church. Each of Jesus' three critiques of the hypocrites are fixed within the paradigm of spiritual disciplines, or what we at Van City would call the practices of Jesus. Certain practices and lifestyle decisions taken from the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus himself. Now, if you've been at Van City for more than a second, you probably know already that we have a tremendously high value of the spiritual disciplines. We've actually built our entire way of doing church, as it were, around the, uh, this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together, and with a very specific purpose in mind. Scott McKnight describes that purpose really well, I think, when he writes, Jesus expects his disciples to practice what he teaches, and he warns those who don't want to practice what he teaches about God's judgment. At the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a section on spiritual disciplines because Jesus expects his disciples to practice charity, praying, and fasting. Jesus, however, doesn't command almsgiving, prayer, or fasting, but assumes them. And this is why I wanted to spend the evening talking about fasting, more or less, because I think there's something really beautiful in here as a spiritual discipline that many of us have been missing out on. Typically, the church has had many uses for responsive fasting. Uh, here are just a few of them before we end tonight. The most common form of fasting in the Bible is as an act of repentance. So, in fact, the, the Hebrew word that the Bible often translates as repent literally means to turn around. So, for this reason, some describe repentant fasting as body turning because it's a means of ordering your entire personhood in a new direction as a response to sin. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but one of Israel's annual memorials was devoted entirely to the public and personal confession of sin so that every year the people of God would come together in one place and they would repent together as a community. That day was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And it was integral, integral to that day. Uh, the confession and the repent repentance was also fasting. This day of fasting was described with the Hebrew word anah, which means something like to afflict one's throat. <laughs> Uh, the idea was that Israel was responding to their own sin with such grief that they afflicted themselves with hunger, not to get something out of it and not to like burden themselves with guilt and shame, but as a response to the grief they felt over their sin. And then uh, repenting becomes more than just a psychological switch that you make in your mind or a few words that you say in a prayer. Those things are awesome, by the way. They're, they're great. You should do those things. But fasting becomes a way to repent even with your body. Another appropriate time of fasting is responding to when God seems quiet or altogether absent. Of course, I think it goes without saying that each of us know what it means to feel distant from God at various seasons of our lives. And by fasting, you're not trying to trick God into saying something when he seems quiet. You are responding to the pain of God's felt absent, absence with your mind and with your spirit and with your body. And this is very different than, say, like complaining about God feeling distant. And fasting isn't, again, to trick God into becoming closer. It is an appropriate response to a season of pain. 
Next, fasting can also be a response to injustice in the world. And this has always been built into God's design for fasting. In fact, let me read this passage from Isaiah 58, in which God himself says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? So when we as a people come to understand our complicity in the poverty of the world as a result of our own greed or materialism or indifference or the shopping decisions that we've made, when we look out on a world that's been ravaged by suffering and injustice, and when we realize there are so many who regularly go hungry and find that we have no empathy for them, that we can't manage to feel anything at all, the disciple of Jesus can respond with fasting. In doing so, they enter into the grief and the suffering of others and the grief and the suffering of God himself. Honestly, I think a great many of us probably know what it means to sort of, you know, be flipping through the news and feel a sudden surge of sorrow or even sympathy at something tragic going on in the world, especially in a time like this. Um, or maybe we know what it's like to see that and, and be burdened or, or grieved by the fact that we feel so little for it and, or that we do nothing about it at all. So fasting is one way that you can sort of seize that moment and respond to that grief with your entire body, even when you're not all the way there psychologically. In fact, an early Christian writing drafted prior to the second century I found this week called The Shepherd of Hermas offers advice on how fasting can be converted into generosity. So the idea is that after, gener after refraining from bread and water, the Christian is to, and I quote, estimate the cost of the food you would have eaten on that day and give that amount to a widow or orphan or someone in need. Be humble in this way that the one who receives something because of your humility may fill his own soul and pray to the Lord for you. Another genre of fasting can be a response to death. And on that note, uh, Scott McKnight, I think, says it best when he wrote this. Why fast when someone dies? Because of our respect for the person who has died is so immense and our grief so great that indulgence in any kind of pleasure desacralizes that respect and pain. And one final example of fasting in the Bible is fasting as kingdom hope. This is when we fast as a response to our great desire for the kingdom of God. Earlier I told this brief story about the way Jesus was questioned uh, about the fact that he and his disciples were not fasting twice a week and the fact that Jesus did not require that of them. And if you know the story, Jesus uses this really strange and interesting metaphor to essentially say, listen, they aren't fasting yet because I'm here, but when I'm gone, they will fast. And there's actually something really beautiful going on in, that, uh, in the context of the greater narrative of the scriptures. See, in the Old Testament, the people of God fasted in anticipation for the coming Messiah. But when Jesus shows up, he asks his disciples not to fast. So they stop fasting. In fact, they go on feasting instead. Jesus actually gets accused of being a glutton because he's not fasting and eating all the time. But then when Jesus leaves, his disciples begin the practice of fasting once again. And they do so in anticipation of the coming kingdom of God in full. And when it arrives, there will be feasting again. For us, fasting can be a response to our hunger for the feasting of the kingdom, so to speak. 
reminding ourselves of our great need and our great longing for it, even when it isn't present in our consciousness or even when it's not something that we feel. And if I may, frankly, I think uh, we are a people, myself absolutely included, who need that kind of reminder because as Americans, we are a people of wealth and privilege. Now, before we sing tonight, I'll admit that for most of us, I think it's safe to say that the takeaway from Jesus' words tonight uh, is not how to fast well, it's how to begin to fast in the first place. And throughout these three teaching units, honestly, working out the application for our church has been a tricky thing. Uh, see, Jesus simply assumes that his disciples have been and will continue to be charitable, uh, to pray, and to fast. But every step of the way, we face the somewhat complicated trouble that many of us have yet to learn how to do any of those things or why to do them in the first place. And knowing you guys and knowing myself, I sincerely doubt that our most pressing concern from the text is that we fast to be celebrated by other people. If that's, you know, one or two of you, uh, then, you know, deal with that, please, on your own time. Uh, maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I think that that's probably not the case for most of us. So I want us to look behind Jesus' warning against broadcasting our spiritual disciplines for our own glory and see the presupposition there. Jesus assumes that spiritual disciplines will be deeply embedded in the lifestyle of his apprentices. He assumes that. And then for us, Jesus' teachings on false righteousness, they don't necessarily uh, act as a correction, but they become a sobering warning as we, Van City, continue to wade into the waters of practicing the way of Jesus. So we want to learn to be charitable, absolutely. We want to learn what it means to pray, yes, and we want to learn what it means to fast. But just as we learn to do these things, we must learn to do them well. Practicing the way of Jesus well means understanding why it is that we engage in any given spiritual discipline. And know this, there, there is a reason for any given thing that you do. And in the absence of a Jesus-compelled motivation, you will practice spiritual disciplines for some other reason. Uh, maybe because I asked you to, that's like one of you, I'm sure, uh, or because your community is doing it, or because you want God's favor, or because you want to feel more spiritual, or because you would like to be recognized by other people. And listen, not all of these motivations are entirely misplaced, but at the very most, they must become secondary dimensions of a much greater purpose. And that purpose is to be with Jesus, and to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. Motive matters to Jesus. And there is a bit of logical nuance here. I think some of you will find that you need to practice secrecy in your spiritual discipline so that you can avoid the temptation to be praised by other people. It's sort of like the same thing as uh, someone who's at great risk for alcoholism, avoids uh, drink and drinking altogether. Others of you will honestly probably be able to discuss uh, your acts of charity and the complexity of your prayer life and the pain of fasting uh, openly and without any inhibition whatsoever uh, because you don't really feel that pull to self-congratulate as much as someone else. And most of you are probably aware of your own wiring. If you're not, you will be when we get to the next practice, which is an advertisement, by the way. Get excited for that. Um, I'm actually a member of the former category. I'm this really strange cocktail of of someone who's completely uninterested in the approval of other people's to a fault, uh, but I am very interested in their attention to a fault. So I am learning to guard against that temptation myself. Now, uh, to end tonight, I think this trio of teaching units 
on false righteousness from Jesus is really inviting us all into two unique connected commands from our teacher. The first is to practice the way of Jesus, to live into the assumption that Jesus makes over your life that you will practice the spiritual disciplines. And then secondly, to do them well. We believe that apprentices of Jesus are actually expected by their teacher to pursue mastery of our Lord's teachings. And the good news is, of course, that the Spirit of God will enable us to do this over time with practice, with trial and error. We won't do it by ourselves. But we believe we are meant to obey Jesus' commands. These teachings reveal Jesus is just as concerned with the why as he is with the what. So for a year now, now, I've been going on and on about the three goals of every disciple of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did. We believe that the practices of Jesus, or spiritual disciplines, are a means by which we achieve those things, but they are not the end goal. The end goal is not prayer, or fasting, silence and solitude, or whatever. They are a means to an end, and that end is to know God. If we learn generosity and prayer and fasting and Sabbath and silence and solitude on down the list, but we do them so that we can check a box or to be celebrated and seen, then we will forfeit the much better reward, which is to know and be known by God himself. And it's not because God will punish you for doing it wrong. It's not because... Uh, you know, you've got to do it exactly right, get the formula right, or you won't get the reward. It's because we will misuse the very means by which we are to be spiritually formed in the first place. And listen to me on this. The answer to improper motivation is not to do nothing. If you feel like, oh, I can't even get my heart in the right place to do spiritual disciplines, the answer is not to do nothing. The answer is to keep practicing and to continue to evaluate and reset your priorities. Sometimes you'll get it right, others you'll get it wrong. Maybe sometimes a combination of both. I talked to a friend of mine on the phone just before uh, the gathering began who fasted for 40 days. And uh, I was just like, hey, I'm about to teach on fasting. Tell me something cool real fast. Um, I didn't think that I was going to say this, so that was not really just to get this story, by the way. I actually enjoyed catching up with my friend. But he mentioned to me that he actually began that fast um, with the instrumental view. He thought, man, maybe if I fast for 40 days, God will answer these specific prayers that I have in my life. I have them written down. And the more that he continued to fast, the more he realized he had lapsed involuntarily into the responsive view, that he felt as if he was seeing the things in his own life that were out of whack, the things in the world that were out of whack, and he was fasting as a response to those things. And in the end, there were amazing effects from it. He was so glad that he did it. There were outcomes that were beneficial, but that wasn't the point. And the, if he would have found himself on day five or day six going like, you know what, my heart's not even in the right place. I'll just knock it off for now. He would have never gotten all the way to the end. He would have never relearned what it means to fast, and he would have never incurred any of those uh, benefits. So the point I'm making is that you continue to practice. You won't always have everything right before you start, but the point is to keep practicing. You won't do it alone. The Spirit of God who is alive in you if you follow Jesus will work to form you and to enable you as you move your way clumsily forward. And I realize this is not the type of thing that you can accomplish in full this evening and have ready for Monday morning, but it is the road that you will walk if you continue in the way of Jesus. So let us remind one another in our communities, as a family, as people who follow Jesus together again and again and again, let us practice the way of Jesus and let us practice the way of Jesus well. With that in mind, 
Let me pray over us and we'll respond to the teachings of Jesus.